New York, this is Democracy Now! More federal law enforcement than I can tell you. In Portland, they've done a fantastic job. They've been there three days, and they really have done a fantastic job in a very short period of time. No problem. They grab them. A lot of people in jail. They're leaders. These are anarchists. President Trump's threatening to deploy federal troops to Chicago, New York, Seattle, Philadelphia, and other cities as outcry grows in Portland, Oregon, where unidentified federal officials have been attacking anti-racist protesters and even snatching activists off the streets in unmarked vans. We'll go to Portland for the latest. Then we'll look at the Trump administration's attempt to force public schools to reopen amidst the nation's worst public health crisis in a century. What the president's made clear, though, is that we think it's absolutely imperative uh, that every state and territory in this country uh, make uh, uh, make uh, steps and take steps, rather, to get kids back in the classroom to the fullest extent possible. We'll speak to teachers in Seattle and Chicago who fear reopening schools will put students, teachers, and staff at risk and will lead to a new surge in COVID-19 deaths and hospitalizations. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Florida has reported more than 10,000 new coronavirus cases for the sixth day in a row. On Monday, Florida's largest teachers union sued Republican Governor Ron DeSantis to block his order requiring all schools reopen next month despite the growing pandemic, which has killed nearly 5,200 Floridians. Meanwhile, Missouri's Republican Governor Mike Parson is insisting students go to school despite the risk of the virus. In an interview, Parson said, quote, they're going to get over it and we can't just let this thing stop us in our tracks, unquote. This all comes as Republican lawmakers in Washington are pushing to include a provision in a new coronavirus relief package tying school funding to the reopening of classrooms. Many public health officials fear the reopening of schools could lead to a new surge in COVID-19 deaths and hospitalizations. In Mississippi, Republican Governor Tate Reeves has ordered residents to wear masks in 10 additional counties as the number of new COVID-19 cases hit a new high in Mississippi Monday. Overall, in the United States, the virus has killed nearly 141,000 people and infected 3.8 million, both by far the highest numbers in the world. In fact, the United States has more than a quarter of the deaths and infections in the entire world, yet only a little more than 4 percent of the population. As cases continue to spike, President Trump has announced he plans to lead a televised coronavirus briefing today for the first time since April. He also tweeted an image of himself wearing a mask for the first time, saying it's patriotic to wear one. Three separate laboratories reported promising results Monday in the race to develop a vaccine against the coronavirus. Andrew Pollard is heading up a vaccine research group at Oxford. So we've now seen exactly the sort of immune responses that we hoped to see, but we now need to do the rigorous studies to show that the vaccine is protective against the virus in humans. The worldwide death toll from COVID-19 has topped 600,000. Across the globe, countries and regions are reimposing new lockdowns and other preventive measures. 
France, Hong Kong and parts of Australia have all imposed new orders to wear masks in public spaces as cases grow again. India recorded at least 40,000 new infections Monday, its highest single-day total. The pandemic is also worsening in sub-Saharan Africa, as the World Health Organization warns of an acceleration of transmission in the region. South Africa's top 5,000 coronavirus deaths, as health experts say the virus is expected to peak in the coming weeks. Nigeria's foreign minister has tested positive for the coronavirus. Meanwhile, Cuba reported zero new cases of COVID-19 for the first time in 130 days. President Trump is threatening to send more federal officers onto the streets of U.S. cities as outrage mounts over their violent treatment of protesters in Portland, Oregon. We're not going to let New York and Chicago and Philadelphia and Detroit and Baltimore and all of these Oakland is a mess. We're not going to let this happen in our country. All run by liberal Democrats. To some of these we cities. Have more federal law enforcement that I can tell you. In Portland, they've done a fantastic job. They've been there three days, and they really have done a fantastic job in a very short period of time. No problem. They grab them. A lot of people in jail. They're leaders. These are anarchists. These are not protesters. Portland, Oregon, unidentified federal troops have beaten protesters, snatched activists into unmarked vans. State and local leaders, including Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, who's also the police commissioner, and Oregon's two Democratic senators, Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden, have called for the troops to be removed from the city's streets. The mayors of Portland, Seattle, Atlanta, Chicago, Kansas City and Washington, D.C., sent a letter Monday to Attorney General William Barr and the Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, writing, quote, unilaterally deploying these paramilitary-type forces into our cities is wholly inconsistent with our system of democracy and our most basic values, unquote. And Congress members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Eleanor Holmes Norton are introducing a bill this week that would require federal law enforcement officers to display their identifying information while on duty. We'll have more on the situation in Portland after headlines. Meanwhile, The Guardian reports Trump has been consulting with former President George W. Bush Justice Department attorney John Yu about the president's authority to bypass federal laws through executive orders. John Yu, widely known as Bush's torture lawyer, wrote the legal memo that justified waterboarding during the George W. Bush years. The House of Representatives held a moment of silence for Congressmember John Lewis on the House floor Monday. Meanwhile, in Georgia, Democrats have selected State Senator Nakima Williams to appear on the November ballot for the late Congressmember Lewis's seat. Williams says she considered Congressmember Lewis to be a friend and mentor. In 2018, she was arrested at a peaceful protest at the state capitol, demanding all votes be counted in the hotly contested gubernatorial election. She's expected to handily win in November against Republican candidate Angela Stanton King, a reality TV personality and author who Trump pardoned after she was convicted for her role in a car theft ring. The suspect in the fatal shooting of a federal judge's son in New Jersey has been found dead. The FBI identified the killer as Roy Den Hollander. 
a self-described anti-feminist lawyer. He filed numerous lawsuits alleging women get special treatment and work to make ladies' nights at bars illegal, as well as ban women's studies at colleges. Dan Hollander appeared before Judge Salas in a case that argued the military draft is unconstitutional because it bars women from registering. In a self-published 1,700-page book, Dan Hollander directly attacked Judge Esther Salas, calling her, quote, a lazy and incompetent Latina judge appointed by Obama. Judge Salas became the first Latina federal judge in New Jersey in 2011. Den Hollander was also a fervent Trump supporter and identified himself as a Trump volunteer in his writings. Den Hollander appeared to die from self-inflicted gunshot wounds, according to some reports. Daniel Anderl, Judge Salas's son, was a student at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and planned to pursue a legal career following his parents' footsteps. Salas's husband, Mark Anderl, who was injured in the shooting, is a criminal defense attorney. In international news, Britain suspended its extradition treaty with Hong Kong Monday in the wake of China's recent imposition of a national security law that effectively quashes any autonomy and dissent in Hong Kong. In related news, pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong announced he's running for a seat in the Legislative Council. Iran executed a man Monday, convicted of spying on the late Revolutionary Guards commander, General Qasem Soleimani, for the U.S. and Israel. Soleimani was killed in Baghdad in a targeted drone strike ordered by President Trump in January. This comes just a day after Iran halted the execution of three men who were sentenced to death after taking part in anti-government protests last November. U.N. experts said they were tortured into confession and had unfair trials. A mass online campaign was launched in an effort to save the young men's lives. Rights groups say at least 300 people were killed and over 7,000 arrested during the protests, which were triggered by a spike in gas prices. Press freedom groups are calling on authorities in Zimbabwe to release journalist Hopewell Chinono, who was arrested and charged with incitement Monday. Chinono has reported on corruption allegations against the government of President Emerson Mnangagwa, including recent stories on procurement fraud during the pandemic, which led to the arrest and firing of the health minister. Back in the United States, Jacksonville's Florida sheriff— Mike Williams, is warning his department is not equipped to provide the needed security for the Republican National Convention in August. It's just over a month from now. As Florida suffers one of the worst outbreaks of COVID-19, Sheriff Williams is saying the event faces challenges of finances, communication and timeline. In Missouri, a white St. Louis couple who pointed guns at anti-racist protesters who marched by their mansion last month have been charged with unlawful use of a weapon. Kim Gardner, who is St. Louis's first black circuit attorney, filed the charges. She said, quote, we must protect the right to peacefully protest and any attempt to chill it through intimidation will not be tolerated. A Michigan judge ruled Monday a 15-year-old African-American student who was sent to prison after she failed to complete her schoolwork online and for reportedly fighting with her mother should not be released and that she was benefiting from the treatment she was receiving in detention. The girl, who's known simply as Grace, has been detained since May. Students have rallied behind Grace and say she was disproportionately punished because she's black. Grace told the court Monday— 
I miss my mom. Tens of thousands of workers across the United States walked off the job Monday as part of the strike for black lives and supported the nationwide uprising against racism and police brutality. Workers demanded the companies they work for do more to dismantle white supremacy, economic inequality, to address the public health emergencies facing black and brown communities. In Washington, D.C., demonstrators gathered on Capitol Hill to call for the passage of the HEROES Act, a coronavirus relief package approved by the Democrat-controlled House. This is McDonald's employee Wanda Lavender, who joined the action in Wisconsin. Like many black workers who are struggling, who are stuck in low-paying jobs, I keep going to work through this pandemic. I can't work my job from home, from the safety of my home, and I can't afford to take time off. And a few times, I've been scared that I had COVID-19 myself. Even though I was feeling sick, coughing my lungs out, my job told me that I had to come in. They said if you take sick leave, you don't have a job to come back to. In medical news, a new study published in the journal Pediatrics shows black children are nearly three and a half times more likely to die in the month following surgery than white children. The causes for the stark disparity are likely attributable to higher rates of chronic diseases and social factors, including implicit bias and structural racism. In Louisiana, an appeals court ruled the Bayou Bridge Pipeline Company trampled the rights of landowners by starting construction of the highly contested pipeline without the permission of the landowners. The 163-mile Bayou Bridge Pipeline is built by Phillips 66 and Energy Transfer Partners, which earlier this month was ordered to shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota pending an environmental review. A warning to our viewers, this headline contains details of sexual assault. In media news, a former Fox business producer has filed a lawsuit accusing recently fired Fox News anchor Ed Henry of raping her. Jennifer Eckhart says Henry sexually assaulted her in an office at the Fox News office building in New York in 2015 and raped her in a New York hotel room in 2017. She says Henry handcuffed her and took naked photographs of her. Eckhart alleges she was terminated in June after she complained to Human Resources about a, quote, toxic work environment at Fox. A co-plaintiff in the lawsuit, the journalist Kathy Aru, accuses Ed Henry of sending her sexual images, messages and videos. The lawsuit also alleges Fox hosts Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity and Howard Kurtz and John O'Caldwell continuously engaged in inappropriate and suggestive behavior. And the journalist and political commentator Michael Brooks has died suddenly at the age of 37. He hosted the online program The Michael Brooks Show and worked with The Majority Report and Jacobin. Tributes have poured in from around the world. Former Brazilian President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva wrote on Twitter, quote, May his passion for social justice be remembered and inspire people around the world. Michael Brooks traveled to Brazil earlier this year to interview Lula shortly after he was released from prison. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Portland, Oregon, where militarized federal officers continue their nightly attacks on anti-racist protesters Monday, shooting gas and projectiles at demonstrators outside Portland's courthouse in a scene that's become all too familiar in recent weeks. Camouflage U.S. agents deployed by the Department of Homeland Security 
waging a campaign of violence against largely peaceful demonstrations in Oregon. The harrowing scene in Portland has drawn increased outrage in recent days, with Oregon Senators Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden demanding federal forces be removed from the streets and an investigation into reports that unidentified federal officers have snatched protesters off the streets into unmarked vans and detained them. On Saturday, Navy veteran Christopher David, who went to the site of the protest to question the officers about their use of violence, was hospitalized with his right hand broken in two places after the officers beat and pepper sprayed him. On Monday, Trump praised the use of unmarked cars and unidentified officers against the anti-racist protesters and vowed to deploy law enforcement agents to more major U.S. cities. More federal law enforcement than I can tell you. In Portland, they've done a fantastic job. They've been there three days, and they really have done a fantastic job in a very short period of time. No problem. They grab them. A lot of people in jail. They're leaders. These are anarchists. These are not protesters. People say protesters. These people are anarchists. These are people that hate our country, and we're not going to let it go forward. Acting Deputy Homeland Security Secretary Ken Cuccinelli echoed Trump's comments on CNN Monday. We backed up the Federal Protective Service, which is responsible for protecting the courthouse there and other federal buildings, uh, with other DHS law enforcement components. And um, that, and we've been there ever since, wearing, by the way, the very same uniforms um, every day, uh, and the crowd has seen them every day. If we get the same kind of intelligence in other places about threats to other federal facilities or officers, we would respond the same way. But protesters in Portland say they won't be deterred. This weekend, a group of mothers joined, formed what they called a wall of moms outside the federal courthouse to shield protesters. This is one of the mothers. Their actions are terrifying. I mean, we as a democracy, and um, we need to stand up. I'm 60 years old. I probably shouldn't be here in public, but this is beyond acceptable. For more, we go to Portland, Oregon, where we're joined by Lilith Sinclair, an Afro-Indigenous organizer, along with an ASL interpreter. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Lilith, if you can start off by describing these last 50 days, why you're out in the streets protesting, and what has been the response by not only the state, but these federal officers um, that have not been unclear who they are. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, I want to say first for having us here and uh, for helping us to provide accessibility to this interview, which is something that we've been really focusing on in Portland for the last 50 days, starting on day one and starting two years ago. Um, it's hard to encompass the depth of what we've experienced in the streets here in Portland. This movement originally started with a single black mom coming out to the streets and leading the call for an occupation here in Portland on the federal court steps um, to demand change. And what that has swelled into is a movement thousands and thousands strong that has really proven to unite so many of our people here. What we've seen is a continuous escalation in violence um, against our protesters. But something that is important for us to understand is that here in Portland, we've been facing severe police brutality, even from our local police force. 
for years, years, years and decades. The movement that we have right now, what is happening in response to, as you mentioned, an international really uprising against police brutality, racism, and I would say even more than that, against oppressive structures, because this isn't, you know, just a movement about police brutality. And so what we've been experiencing is a solid escalation. It started out with, as per usual, our local Portland Police Bureau um, engaging in a lot of not only intimidation tactics, but uh, violent brutality against our protesters. Um, we've had officers that have been deploying flashbangs after flashbangs after flashbangs, um, while simultaneously deploying CS gas and other munitions, tear gas, and all of these different types of pepper spray bullets and new things that we actually haven't even seen once the federal government has come in. But this has been a long-term engagement with a militarized police force. And it's important for us to recognize that the federal occupation has escalated it, especially because of the rhetoric that we're seeing from those who hold office. But what we're noticing is that the violence as per usual, is continuing to rise. We're seeing these disappearances. Um, I think it's important to note that these unmarked cars that are going around on the street are unmarked rental vehicles. Um, they have, are full of men in uniforms, no badges, no IDs. They refuse to even answer the question of, are you or are you not law enforcement? And it's left the people of Portland not only worried about their safety, but even safety, but even more so justified in the fight that we're engaged in. A recognition that, especially during an international global health pandemic, as you talked about these numbers rising and the continued push of normalcy in the midst of all of this, especially from not just Republicans, but also Democrats too, who are continuing to hold this pressure to reopen, like here in Oregon, where we created a new reopening and then saw people now, weeks later, experiencing higher rates in cases, um, being once again laid off from their jobs, being once again failed by the unemployment system. And what's happening in Portland is what's happening all across the country. The people have a moment because to understand and truly see the failures of this capitalist white supremacist system because they have nothing but time on their hands. And so what we understand is that the movement continuing to go forward is only swelling. It's why we see moms coming out to, to line up a wall that was followed up last night with uh, the dad block. Um, a lot of amazing, amazing folks that came downtown last night after watching people get brutalized on a nightly basis. We are spending our nights in terror. We can't sleep on one side of the city or the other due to the flashbangs, due to the tear gas across the entire city. Um, it's affecting our houseless communities. It's affecting our neighborhoods. And it's gone unaddressed by both our state officials and also our local officials here in Portland with nothing but well-meaning words, which is only further causing a very rightful sense of frustration, anger, and a need for justice from the people here. It's why we see these things continuing to grow. 
So, Lilith Sinclair, can you talk about um, what you're referring to, the elected officials? You have everyone from the state attorney general um, to the two senators, the governor. This is Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler criticizing Trump for deploying federal troops on the streets of Portland. President Trump has used our city as a staging ground to further his political agenda, igniting his base to cause further divisiveness, and in doing so, endangering Portlanders. President Trump has gone so far as vowing that federal law enforcement will, quote, dominate, unquote, protesters and mobilize federal agencies to operate in cities. This is an explicit abuse of power and places federal officers and Oregonians in danger. That's Portland Mayor and Police Chief Ted Wheeler. That might surprise some people that he occupies both positions. Um, but, Lilith, uh, can, can you talk more about uh, what the elected officials are saying, your agreement with them in this particular case, but disagreements with them and others, of the significance of them leading this charge, which now mayors are picking up all over the country, saying to Trump, do not send uh, federal officers here. Yeah. So um, I do want to make a slight correction, just because I heard you say chief and uh, Mayor Ted Wheeler is our police commissioner um, and also our mayor. Um, so I'd like to break down a couple of things, actually. Thank you so much for that fantastic question. I think one of the most important things to understand is that our mayor here in Portland, Ted Wheeler, has one of the best PR teams um, and simultaneously the worst PR teams, um, because as much as we can play the words that uh, were just shared here on the broadcast today. It's important to understand that, um, for instance, something that made national headlines this month was when federal officers fired at a protester holding a speaker over his head, um, uh, clearly unarmed. Um, that man is, sorry, it's a little bit um, hard to handle because it made international news for our federal military officers to shoot an unarmed protester in the head and cause severe damage and hospitalization in that way. However, it's important to note that a year ago during um, protesting against white supremacy, which is really, 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 really present here in Portland as a as a city within a state that was founded on a history of uh, white supremacy and genocide. And what we know to be true is that even a year ago when we were protesting white supremacy, our local Portland Police Bureau officers were firing flashbang grenades at uh, point blank range. They actually hit a protester wearing a very thick helmet directly in the back of the head with a grenade. Uh, it concaved both their helmet and also resulted in um, very severe skull fractures. If they weren't wearing a helmet, there's almost no doubt that they wouldn't be alive with us today. And something that is important for us to understand is that Ted Wheeler is not leading the charge to anything except for his reelection campaign. Um, what we know is that we've been fighting for steps forward in regards to change around policing for years in regards to the union police contract that we've been discussing here in Portland that our mayor has been dragging his feet on for weeks um, or for, I should say, years. Um, 
in tandem with so many of our city officials who I and others have had the opportunity to meet with. And, um, you know, I think the something is the most poignant about it all is something that Ted Wheeler told a group of us as we literally cried, um, cried and yelled and expressed our frustrations in the Rose Room of City Hall about the tear gas, which is an abortificant, which affects all of our community members, which is destroying the lives of our houseless members and our neighbors and residents um, in the middle of a global health pandemic. And Ted Wheeler's response was to announce that they were considering doing an investigation. And when we asked him when or how long that would take, he told us that, um, there were no decisions on this yet, despite the fact that the day before the Seattle mayor had actually already declared that uh, she was going to be halting tear gas use uh, by her police force. And Ted, as the police commissioner, with the ability to do so, uh, told us that he would not do so. And he told us that he hasn't gotten tear gas because um, he doesn't want to. <laughs> and so the recognition is that there's a disconnect. We can't look a politician in the face who says that he hasn't gotten tear gas because he doesn't want to. Um, as though the millions of people across the world getting tear gas fighting for our rights and our safety and our security don't want to get tear gassed either. And that is that sort of uh, inaction has been really evident all the way up the chain in regards to what Kate Brown has done about, for instance, perhaps pardoning prisoners in a state where we held for the longest time the quote unquote right to process prisoners with non-unanimous juries that's recently been overturned by the Supreme Court. And yet we still have prisoners that are sitting across Oregon jails and prisons that have been convicted with non-unanimous juries, wasting away at risk of death of COVID. And so it's an intersectional issue that we know is not centered on the police only, but when we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, it's important that we understand we're talking about an intersectional movement that's focusing on not just stopping the police from killing us, but stopping the entire system from killing us. Whether that, that means a lack of access for the disability community, who also is uh, Black, uh, for members of the trans and queer community who are also Black and are experiencing these things, houseless people who are also Black, um, women who are significantly underbelieved and at risk of death um, by our health system, it's the issues are myriad and multiplied. And the root of all of these issues that we know to be true is that all of this is based on the same colonialism, genocide, capitalism, and white supremacy that is the foundation that this country was built on. And here in Portland, we're really making sure that we're prioritizing education. We're prioritizing history. We're prioritizing teaching our people how to take care of one another. And I think that that's why it's been so frustrating to consider what it is that our elected officials are or are not, are not doing, because no matter what steps they take forward within uh, in regards to reform inside a system that is already broken and crumbling, we know that these, no matter what, are not steps that will save us. And instead, we need abolitionist steps forward, fighting for the abolition of the police uh, department, the militarized police, looking for the demilitarization and defunding of the entire U.S. military budget, understanding that we also mean abolition of the police system or the prison system and abolition of uh, ableist, white supremacist, uh, 
homophobic, transphobic, and all these other oppressive systems that are all uh, combined together, including anti-Semitism and all of these other things. Lilith Sinclair, I want to thank you so much for being with us, Afro-Indigenous local organizer in Portland, Oregon. When we come back, we'll look at the legal battle to protect protesters and remove the federal agents from Portland's streets. Stay with us. Brother, sister, shoot your best. We don't need this fascist cruel thing. Brothers, sisters, we don't need that fascist cruel thing. Brothers, sisters, we don't need that fascist cruel thing. History will repeat itself. Crisis point when near the hour. Counterforce will do no good. This fascist groove thing by Heaven 17. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn to the legal battle to protect the protesters or remove federal agents from Portland's streets, on Friday, Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum filed a lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Marshal Service, and U.S. Customs and Border Protection, calling the behavior of federal agents unlawful. The U.S. Attorney for the District of Oregon also called for an investigation into unidentified federal officers who have been snatching protesters off the streets into unmarked vans and detaining them. Oregon Senators Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden are also demanding a probe and for federal forces to be removed from the streets. And, of course, the protesters are demanding that these federal troops be removed from the streets. For more, we go to Portland, where we're joined by Juan Chavez, the project director and attorney at the Oregon Justice Resource Center. He recently partnered with other attorneys to introduce litigation to stop Portland police from using tear gas and munitions on protesters. Protesters. Uh, welcome to Democracy Now!, Juan. You've been in the Good streets. Morning. You've been watching what's happening. For people to understand what's taking place, what do the federal agents look like? Where are they from? Can you identify whether they're Bureau of Prisons, uh, Customs and Border Protection? We only know as much as we've been told by the Department of Homeland Security. Um, as far as we know, our understanding is that they are uh, U.S. Marshals as well as agents from Border Patrol. So um, they they come from a uh, uh, an agreement with the Department of Justice. Uh, I think Bill Barr uh, mentioned this during the D.C. protests as well that he is bringing in uh, basically all federal officers into uh, protest situations to enforce what would be state law in in uh, the normal circumstances here in Portland, but uh, they're, they're extending their, their the breadth of types of uh, federal enforcement they can do in downtown Portland. Can you explain what um, they're doing in the streets? I mean, describe what some of these—these uh, are called, what, snatch teams? Uh, what some of them are doing, how they go up to someone and take them. One person saying they were running away because they didn't know, are these kidnappers? 
Right. I mean, you have these um, camouflage, you know, goon squads coming out of unmarked vans that uh, 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 reporting has shown were rented from Enterprise Rent-A-Cars. And uh, they just appear in the middle of the night um, uh, next to people who are in and around downtown who I, uh, who then get corralled into these vehicles, not pulled where or, or who's picking them up. Uh, and uh, at least one person talked about having their hat pulled over their head and driven around. And by, by best of our uh, accounts, uh, were taken to the federal courthouse here in Portland and interrogated there before being let go. So they don't have to identify themselves? There, there is no marking on their, cami- on their camouflage um, uniforms? No. Um, so uh, various state laws would apply to state actors regarding, you know, them having to identify themselves or tell uh, the person who they're detaining who they are. Uh, there is some federal um, uh, Oregon state laws that that discuss federal officers, if they are enforcing Oregon law, have to identify themselves and identify the purpose that they're detaining someone. But so far as we've seen so far, nobody, ha- uh, no, none of these camouflaged uh, troopers have identified themselves to anybody who they're detaining. Um, so uh, there's a lot of uh, open questions. So can you talk about the bill that uh, Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is introducing this week uh, that would demand that, among other things, uh, that these officers identify themselves? She's introducing it with Eleanor Holmes Norton, requiring the officers display their identifying information while on duty. The legislation also calls for further oversight of the Justice Department, requiring its inspector general to perform routine audits to guarantee compliance with the legislation. Well, I I don't know the details of the Congresswoman's uh, legislation, but I can say that from local experience, um, these kind of identification rules last until they don't. Um, In in fact, not to about a month ago, the chief of the Portland police allowed her officers uh, to uh, to not display their name badges when they're out patrolling protests. Instead, they have these uh, uh, masking tapes uh, across their their chest with their internal ID number written in very faint ink. Um, and then when people are seeking to uh, identify these officers through public records requests, they're being told, no, you can't use those ID numbers. You need to have um, you, you need to have an actual name. I mean, setting aside the fact that it's difficult to read these numbers and they're often pretty long strings. I, I sometimes I forget my pin number. I mean, I can't I don't I don't think I would be able to quickly uh, recall an eight string digit number while running away from from tear gas and cops. So uh, if if uh, this bill is robust enough to protect against things like that, then um, then that sounds like a positive development. Juan Chavez, um, you told Oregon Public Broadcasting it's like stop and frisk meets Guantanamo Bay. Explain. Certainly. So, um, I mean, these tactics aren't new in terms of uh, American imperialism. We, this has been our foreign policy for some time. If, uh, uh, if if foreign soldiers of our own were detaining people in Pakistan or, or Somalia or in South America, 
uh, th- these would be the similar tactics they they would have used. Um, these are so that's hence the the reference to Guantanamo Bay, and then of course stop and frisk was a vast racist uh, policy used to thwart the constitutional standard by which officers can. Uh, engage with people. And so the combination of those two things, uh, we, I don't think we've seen in, in the United States, um, or at least I don't know what the Fed or what the analog would be. The closest, I suppose, would be actually what our immigrant, commu- immigrant communities have gone through for, for, you know, even before Trump in dealing with ICE. Uh, the ICE officers are, are known for showing up, having faulty warrants, and trying to convince uh, people they think are immigrants uh, to, to come into their detention. We've seen that in Oregon, in fact. Interestingly, when you talk about um, internationally what happens, so often it's U.S. trained. I mean, you look at Central America, for example, uh, Latin American soldiers um, in the past who've been moving into people's home and arresting them. The shock for Americans in the United States is to see it on U.S. soil. In some cases, I mean, many communities actually Mm -hmm. do experience this feeling of occupation. And now what's interesting is the establishment, um, the government the senators, the mayors, the state attorneys general are saying this can't happen on U.S. soil when it's hitting the mainstream population. Mm. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'd I'd say that a lot of these local officials, uh, state, federal, local, have have been complicit with some form of occupation for a long time. Uh, Policing is just another form of, of counterinsurgency for uh, so many communities. So uh, these these tactics have been uh, built up for a very long time. And so long as we continue to fuel policing, fuel prisons as a solution for public safety, we're going to continue to see this uh, down, downward slope of uh, our rights being infringed. Well, we're going to continue to follow all that's happening in Portland because it's going also to expand according to President Trump's promises to other cities. And we're going to go to two of those cities. We're going to go to Chicago and Seattle. Juan Chavez is the project director and attorney at the Oregon Justice Resource Center, partnered with other attorneys to introduce litigation to stop local police from using tear gas and munitions on protesters. When we come back, we'll speak with two education activists um, about Trump's push to reopen the schools during the pandemic. Uh, They are in cities where federal troops may go next. Chicago and Seattle, stay with us. Hey, look, I pray you catch a wave that doesn't subside. This for the nappy heads in heaven. With a nappy head Christ by their side, I pray you catch a wave that doesn't subside. This for the nappy heads in heaven. With an happy head, Christ by their side, yeah. May your streets be paved with gold, yeah. Hope my whole hood make it home, yeah. May your streets be paved with gold, yeah. Hope my whole hood make it home, yeah. Cause the world can be toxic Especially when your skin look like chocolate 
Make It Home by Toby Nguigwe, featuring David Michael Wyatt. This is Democracy Now!, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Mayors in six cities are now calling for the immediate removal of of President Trump's rapid deployment units. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler made the demand in letters addressed to leading members of Congress, Attorney General William Barr and Homeland Security's acting secretary, Chad Wolf. He was joined by Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, Kansas City Mayor Quinton Lucas, and Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin. President Trump's expected to send federal agents to Chicago as early as this week to confront protesters. This is Trump speaking Monday. We're not going to let New York and Chicago and Philadelphia and Detroit and Baltimore and all of these. Oakland is a mess. We're not going to let this happen in our country. All run by liberal Democrats. And this is Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot responding to Trump in an interview on Joy Reid's new show on MSNBC. We still have a constitution. We still have laws on the book. And I'm going to use those to deploy against them. We're not going to have tyranny in the city of Chicago. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen, she says. For more, we're joined by two guests in cities where federal troops could be sent after they've already been deployed in Portland. In Chicago, G2 Brown is with us, national director of the Journey for Justice Alliance and a racial equity fellow with the Atlantic Institute. And in Seattle, Washington, Jesse Hagopian, high school teacher of ethnic studies, co-editor of Teaching for Black Lives and editor of Rethinking Schools magazine, serving on the National Steering Committee of Black Lives Matter at school. Um, We are going to talk about Trump's push for schools to reopen at all costs in a minute. But first, G2 Brown, you are a longtime uh, civil rights, human rights leader in Chicago. Um, As you hear Lori Lightfoot says, we're not allowing tyranny to come to the city. Your response to what President Trump is saying he will do. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me on, Amy, and and saying I'm a longtime uh, organizer is just saying I'm old, so <laughs> that's okay. I can deal with that. But um, I, I would just say uh, that uh, Mayor Lightfoot's statements are, are the right statements, but it's too late. Um, you know, when you look at Chicago during the COVID, uh, when, when COVID outbreak first exploded, and we saw in cities where the black death toll um was way above, you know, that of our white counterparts. For example, in Chicago, we're only 30 percent of the population, but we were 70 percent of the deaths. Uh, We saw uh, checkpoints in places like Newark, New Jersey, uh, where people had to show identification to get into different neighborhoods. Uh, We saw uh, as rebellion after the murder of George Floyd uh, and rebellions began to ensue around the country. Uh, I know in my neighborhood, it was martial law. Uh, and, 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 you know, my, my humble opinion is that it still is. So we're looking at, uh, regardless of the disaster or the moment, we are looking at the infringement on our rights that is just escalating and they're going further and further. So, uh, you know, Donald Trump having federal agents coming to Chicago is something that we should definitely be worried about. But we should not act as if our rights have not been infringed upon already. That, um, uh, I mean, if you really want to talk about it, you go back to the crime bill. And I remember uh, when, uh, as a young organizer, I saw um, Chicago police remove 
two busloads full of young people from the Ida B. Wells housing projects and take them to jail. And that opened the door for the mass incarceration of young black and brown men and women. And so I think it's really important that we, we keep this in context. The last thing I'll say is along with the federal agents, the risk of federal agents and unmarked vehicles coming into our city and what that means for for people that are protesting, what that means for organizations. I think it's also important to note that police uh, have taken the gloves off. Just this past week in Chicago, a young organizer who I worked with, uh, Miracle Boyd, who uh, when I met her, she was fighting to stop the closure of all the high schools in her neighborhood. Uh, She was protesting at an event where they were trying to, you know, to protest a, a Christopher Columbus statue and a Chicago police officer as she was vigorously protesting ran up on this 18 year old girl and smashed her in the mouth with his baton and knocked her teeth out we just had a press conference supporting miracle yesterday so the brutality is not new the infringement on our rights is not new whether the agent is Donald Trump or the agent of change or the agent of this type of uh, infringement on our rights of Democrats our rights are already being infringed upon. Jesse Gopian, before we go to the issue of forced school openings, I'm wondering if you can address—I mean, the activism in um, Seattle has been massive, from the Chaz and the Chop, the autonomous zones that were set up in the Capitol Hill neighborhood— um, to what President Trump is threatening now. Um, the Seattle Mayor Durkin has joined other mayors, five other mayors, in writing a letter demanding federal agents not come to Seattle. Yes, thanks for having me on the show again, Amy. I really appreciate it. And it truly is chilling to think that Trump is getting ready to send federal troops unmarked to come to my city and snatch people and disappear them uh, from our streets. And I think that as a history teacher, I know that this type of behavior of disappearing protesters is really the mark of dictatorial and fascist regimes throughout history. And it's also, though, been the mark for far too many of our own people here in the United States. I think we're getting to see now on national television what undocumented immigrants have had to go through for for years. And frankly, black and brown families who have had their loved ones snatched and put behind bars in this mass incarceration regime uh, for far too long. But I will say that Uh, Our mayor, Jenny Durkin's posturing against Trump is just that, because for all her rhetoric about how she doesn't need federal interference, uh, in in fact, she has gone along with a lot of the policies that that Trump would like. Here in Seattle, a mass of protesters uh, helped to drive the police out of the East Precinct after they indiscriminately tear-gassed and brutalized protesters in the wake of George Floyd's uh, horrific murder. And uh, Trump called the protesters uh, 
terrorists and said he was going to send in troops here to deal with the situation if, if Jenny Durkin wouldn't. And while she said, we don't need your federal interference, uh, she, in fact, did clear out the protesters with same brutal tactics. And so that's why I'm supporting uh, decriminalize Seattle and King County Equity Now's demands that uh, we defund the police by 50 percent, that we use that money for health and safety, and that we free all the protesters. So let's turn to the issue of education. I want to ask you about President Trump's push to reopen U.S. schools, even as COVID rates skyrocket in so many states. Major school districts like Los Angeles and Atlanta plan to start their semesters with online classes. Um, I wanted to read from a teacher's op-ed in The New York Times. Her name is Rebecca Martinson. Um, the headline, I won't return to the classroom and you shouldn't ask me to. Um, she's writing from Washington State. And she says, every day when I walk into work as a public school teacher, I'm prepared to take a bullet to save a child. In the age of school shootings, that's what the job requires. But asking me to return to the classroom amidst a pandemic and expose myself and my family to COVID-19 is like asking me to take that bullet home to my own family. Jesse Hagopian, you're a high school teacher also in Washington, editor of Rethinking Schools. Can you talk about what you're demanding now in Washington state? Absolutely. You know, I love my students and I know that the best place for them to learn is in classrooms where they can collaborate and collectively solve problems. And it has been heartbreaking to see that experience ripped from so many students here in Seattle and across the country as we move to online learning. And I don't think that online learning is sufficient or adequate, but I also want to live and I also want my students to live. And that's why I'm joining with thousands of teachers across the country and parents and unions uh, and communities to say it's just not safe to re open the schools under these conditions. We don't have proper ventilation. We don't have a nurse in every school in the world's richest country, or even in the shadow of Amazon and Microsoft and Boeing and Starbucks here in Seattle. We don't have a nurse in every school. We don't have proper uh, COVID testing. And I think that it's time to redefine what public safety means. Is public safety uh, police brutalizing black and brown communities? Or is public safety making sure that the 150 homeless kids that attend my high school have a place to sleep at night, right? Is public safety uh, about police in every school building? Or is public safety making sure there's a counselor and a nurse and trauma counseling and restorative justice in, in, in every school, right? Uh, and is public safety federal troops in our cities, or or is it COVID testing uh, for for all of our youth and and educators? And I resoundingly want to side with the folks that say we need to make sure that the money is flowing towards these social programs instead of uh, to the police and really uh, to bailing out the richest uh, folks in this country. I mean. 
This this government could find one point five trillion dollars to bail out the financial sector and corporations. But we don't have the money for for personal protective equipment for for teachers and students. It's outrageous. It's astounding right now to watch this debate in Congress. President Trump is taking on his own Republican Party and Republican leaders in uh, saying he will not fund testing. G2 Brown, your organization, Journey for Justice Alliance, published an open letter to President Trump outlining 14 demands that you say must be met before schools are reopened. You say there should be zero new positive COVID cases for 14 consecutive days. School HVAC units must be fully functional. Teacher-student ratio must be 1 in 10. Talk about your demands. So, Amy, um, and amen to uh, my brother Jesse's comments, uh, I think— um, you know, it is it is, you know, really just mind boggling what's happening right now. But I want to say that uh, the Journey for Justice Alliance uh, with our 36 uh, member affiliates in, in, in uh, well, 36 cities across the country, we polled our members and then we polled allies to say, you know, what what would a safe and equitable return to school look like for you? And so that's how we came with those demands. Um, we're very clear that in a system that has never even reached the mandate of Brown v. Board, that has never even reached equality, let alone equity, that has never, to make it to make it plain, that has never shown black and brown children and indigenous children love, um, we would be crazy to just send our children back into a system that has been carnivorous towards our young people. Brothers like Jesse have had to work despite the system, not in concert with the system, not with the support of the system. They've had to create their own organizations where they can come together and say, what does culturally relevant curriculum look like? How do we get more black teachers in the school system? So we have to make sure that we do we organize to make sure that schools open the way that, that we uh, are satisfied with. Um, here's a point. All around the country, janitorial services have been privatized. Companies like Aramark. Uh, in Chicago and in, in New Jersey and uh, other places, schools are filthy. There was a story in Chicago around Mollison Elementary School, which was rat infested. And several other schools came forward and said, we are too. So just like they privatized schools and made an inequitable system worse, they privatized janitorial services and made uh, the, what, you, what was once a union job worse. So do we actually believe that without public pressure, they're going to sanitize schools on a daily basis? G2, sanitize we just have 10 seconds. Uh, Betsy DeVos said yeah. President Trump's threat to defund schools that won't reopen. Well, I—, I I think they're doing what, you know, is within their value system. They're, they're doing, uh, I think Donald Trump is all about re-election. They don't, they don't want to leave office. And I think it's really important to note that what Betsy DeVos is doing is what she's been trained to do. What would we expect differently from her? So the, the, the important piece, I think, Amy, is that Five seconds. Uh, we're, we're saying our communities must organize. To, get, to make sure that these demands are met. And so on August 3rd, 
there will be a national day of action. A national we'll have day to leave it there. Juju Brown, Jesse Hagopian. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining. 